Uh, good morning. I was talking with, uh, hopefully he'll see this, I was talking with PA this morning. He said, hey, i got to work. I'm not going to be at church. And I replied simply by saying, well, this morning we're talking about church discipline. <laughs> Albert made a comment in Sunday school this morning, and my response was the same. This morning we're talking about church discipline. <laughs> and somebody else made some other comment, and guess what? My response was the same. This morning we're talking about church discipline. <laughs> And it wasn't a joke. We are really talking about church discipline this morning because that's where we're at in 1 Corinthians. Let's pray together and we will jump into this passage of Scripture. Lord, I want to thank you so much for the time that you uh, give us every Sunday morning. God, for your conviction in our hearts, it causes us to prioritize the local church gathering as we come together to sit at your feet, learn from you and what you have to say. And God, my, my thoughts and my philosophies, they, they don't mean anything in this moment. We just want to know what you have taught through your word. We want to know you more. We want you to conform us more to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we want this word to be effective in our lives. Lord, we love you and thank you for everything. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds that understand. And through the proclamation of your word this morning, give us hearts that yearn after you and only you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. And Paul has been dealing with the division in the church at Corinth, and last week we finished up a section about the relationship between the elders of the church and the congregation, the members of the local church, and today Paul begins addressing the immorality present in the midst of the congregation at Corinth. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, and I will read this passage in its entirety, and then we will walk through uh, verse by verse, like is our custom here at the church at Sunsites. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. An immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant, and have not mourned instead, so that one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. May God bless the reading of His Word. Paul is... Harsh here, <laughs> right? And there is some kind of immorality going on in the church at Corinth that is not even present among the Gentiles, among those who are unbelievers, among those who are outside the community of faith, the covenant community of faith, those who are outside the church. Look at chapter 5, verse 1 with me. It is actually reported, like this thing being reported is surprising to Paul. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. Now the word immorality 
reality here is the Greek word porneia. The Greek word porneia refers to all sorts of sexual sin. It is an umbrella on which, uh, under which we find sexual sins such as simple lust and um, uh, gay marriage and um, transgenderism, um, self-identity. This is the umbrella under which we find all of these sins. And and the Greek word is porneia. In this case, it is a a man having, having, relationally having his biological mother, his, his father's wife. And the word there for wife is a word that means to know intimately and to have and to own, to possess intimately as in a sexual relationship. So likely his, his biological mother, and that's the type of porneia happening in this text, but, but all of this immorality under this porneia umbrella, it's this type of sin that is in view of the text that is present in the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth has failed to address at least this sexual sin in the midst of the congregation. It is actually reported that there is immorality, porneia, among you. An immorality, porneia, of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. Paul here is saying, you're letting something happen in the midst of the congregation, in the midst of the church, that not even unbelievers are okay with. There's something going on in the midst of the congregation that unbelievers would look at, those outside the community of faith. They would look in and they, they see this happening and, and this, is, this is heinous in their eyes. And they're not even in Christ. They don't even believe in Christ. They don't even exalt the law of God like we exalt the law of, of God. They don't consider the word of God to be important and still they are more moral than you are in this case when it comes to this porneia, this sexual immorality in the midst of the congregation. Now this gets me thinking, of course I'm always thinking about uh, how, well how does this apply to us, okay? <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking about that. I don't, I don't think there's this level of sexual immorality going on in the midst of this congregation, okay? But I think there perhaps are, are other sins, and I'm going to speak more generically, right? I think there are other sins that the church struggles with, perhaps more than people who are outside of the church struggle Against uh, areas in which those outside of the church actually honor God more with their actions than those in the church do, and I, and I think one of those areas is is greed in our time, where Christians would confess faith in Jesus Christ in order to uh, gain an inheritance for themselves rather than honor Christ as holy, confess Christ as Lord, and recognize that He owns everything. Instead, we're trusting in Christ to gain an inheritance for, for self. And so there's some level of greed, like the reason some people profess faith in Jesus Christ is so that they can have their own kingdom, not so they can be a part of Christ's kingdom. And so I think there's a level of greed there that comes in. I think this, this greed has been actually taught in the church. Like, if you died today, would you go to heaven? Would, wouldn't you want to have your mansion in the clouds? And it's just this level of greed, it sounds like, right? Like, you can have all, you, you can have all this stuff if you just place your faith in Jesus Christ. If you just confess with your mouth that He is Lord, then, then you're good. You can have your mansion in the sky. You can go to your paradise. You can see all your family members on the other side. And there's nothing about Christ in that sort of gospel. It's all, all about me. So I think greed has infected the church. I am thankful that I don't see this level of porneia within the church. But there are... There are certain groups who are arguing in favor of um, the church supporting homosexual marriage, which falls under the umbrella of porneia, right? Under the uh, porneia um, umbrella, the sexual sin. And what makes that so bad is not because, you know, we're not against happiness. The church isn't against happiness. We want people to live blessed and happy lives. We really want that, okay? 
what makes sexual sin in any case so devastating, and this I'll say there are many heterosexual marriages that are just as sinful as homosexual marriages. What makes sexual sin so bad, what makes sexual sin so devastating in the Christian life is that sexual sin quite literally means I am living in order to fulfill my own preferences. I am living according to my own identity. I am living in order to gratify myself and pursue everything I want in life, which is the sort of selfishness that is exactly opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or even in a heterosexual marriage, somebody gets into a heterosexual relationship, if their motivation is... I think this lady is hot, she can satisfy, she can gratify me, and I can, I can pursue my own happiness through this relationship. That is just as sinful. That is still sexual sin because it is based on lust and not sacrificial love. And do we understand, when Christians participate in this conversation, Christians are so quick to condemn homosexuality and not recognize that there are many, 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 many sexual sins under this pornea umbrella. And then we forget to approach the conversation with grace like we say, we want to say yes, that is sin. It is dishonoring to God and sin separates us from God relationally but there is unconditional grace and unconditional election whereby Christ comes in, He saves the person He has chosen, regenerates the heart and changes that person from the inside out so that the person learns how to love rather than lust. So that instead of being I, I need my happiness I have needs <laughs> false <laughs> okay Instead of being like that, which is entirely lustful and entirely selfish, we can, we can say, my desire is, is to love someone, to sacrifice myself for someone. My desire is for others to be happy and for others to know Christ. And my desire is to honor God rather than myself because I am about now the kingdom of heaven rather than my own kingdom. And, and somehow in the Christian community, we fail to get at just that basic fact that it's, it's not about condemning people's happiness. It, it is about teaching what love really is, which is self-sacrifice which is living for the benefit of others. And if I am pursuing my own sexual identity, no matter what that is, right? If I am pursuing my own sexual identity, that's entirely selfish. That is self-consumed. And all I'm going to do when I am pursuing that is walk on others so I can get what I want. And how much of the social activism we see today is just people being selfish babies almost all of it right this is the sin group the the umbrella of sin we refer to as porneia or that Paul refers to as porneia as he is writing this and we even get an English word from this Greek word pornography And I don't know if you know what's popular when people are searching pornographic content, but it is horrendous in our current culture. The world is worse than the church today. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful the church has grown up a little bit since the first century. But I think Christians are caught up in that secretly, even though the church doesn't support it today. And I think those groups who do support homosexual marriage and homosexual individuals serving in the clergy of the church, I think they will have to answer to Christ. Because that is porneia, that is the sin Paul is referring to here. Verse 2, Paul says, You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's, he's connecting arrogance with the existence of this type of immorality in the church. So you could draw a line in your Bible if you, if you do that sort of thing. If you don't think it's sacrilegious to mark your Bibles up, you could draw a line 
from the word arrogant to the word immorality in verse 1. You have become arrogant and have not mourned. So something about being arrogant means the local church is allowing this egregious sin to persist within the congregation. There's something about arrogance that permits sin, whereas humility finds the strength to address sin where sin needs to be addressed. And I, and, and I think it's something like this because I've experienced this, and I don't know if this is what's, what's happening in the church at Corinth or not, uh, but I, I think it probably is. Because this is the temptation for every church. This is the temptation for, for every leader of every church because we want our churches to succeed. And we want our churches to succeed according to the modern sense of the word, according to modern culture's definition of the word. And, and success means what? Growing in number. And to grow in number, to become the biggest church... Um, you don't do that by being really exclusive. Okay? You do that by being inclusive. Like, oh, is that, is that how you feel about that? Ah, that's all right. We welcome everybody in here. Uh, oh, you're a, you're a monergist? Cool. Uh, you believe that people cooperate with God for salvation? Cool. We'll take everybody, you know. Um, oh, you don't think that's a sin? Uh, that's cool. Come and be a part of our congregation. We're not really interested in <laughs> making sure you know how to live. Ah, Jesus never addressed sin or anything like that. He just loved people. So we're just, we're just all about love here. That's how you attract worldly people to come into the church and that's how you build a successful organization i don't think paul's interested in doing that (laughs) he's saying something that's very exclusive and arrogance causes us to one well it's a puffing up of knowledge that causes us to be arrogant right and puffing up of knowledge causes us to always defend ourselves, always try to justify ourselves, which, which is going on here with this, with this person who is having his father's wife. There's, there's arrogance there. And the whole church, because it seems to be an inclusive type of church, the whole church is helping him try to justify his sin, his actions. So uh, you see a, a church body that tries to justify those things that do not honor God uh, for the sake of unity and for the sake of inclusivity. Scripture identifies them as arrogant. Arrogant because they were so concerned about trying to justify this sin that they did not mourn over it. They did not look into the Scriptures and see, oh, this is This is sin. This is a crime against God Almighty, and it's being done in a very public way. Instead of looking to the Scriptures and saying, oh, this is a crime, this is a sin, they say something like, oh, the Bible doesn't mean that. Oh, Jesus never taught about that. He did, by the way. (laughs) Oh, the Old Testament is outdated. It's not. If God spoke it, if God is timeless and He spoke anything at all, it can't be outdated ever, okay? This church is not mourned so that the one who did, did this deed would be removed from your midst. Well, now Paul's talking about excommunication. This is getting real uncomfortable real quick. Excommunication is kind of a a dirty word, isn't it? We don't talk about excommunication. (laughs) But Paul talks about excommunication so that this man will be removed from your midst. Why? Because he is living in egregious sin before God. It's not just that... Oh, I, I, I took a misstep. Oh, I, I, I didn't have great judgment and I, and I sinned against God one time and I, and I repented. And that's not the type of sin we're talking about. Like if this man made, took one misstep, made one mistake and repented, Paul wouldn't be having this conversation with the church at Corinth. This man is living in sin, taking his father's wife for himself and doing, doing the deed. Ugh. 
it's a lifestyle now and the whole local church is overlooking it and by overlooking it supporting him as he tries to justify his own sin however he's trying to justify his own sin and Paul is saying here like if you really cared to honor God local church you you would have mourned over that man's sin because he is a brother and because you love him sacrificially love doesn't mean oh keep him here because we need a bigger audience Love means sacrificial love, wanting to do what's best for the good of the person. And and him sleeping with his mom is not good for him. And Paul is saying here, it's it's the local church's responsibility than to mourn over that sin and to excommunicate such an individual who is living in such sin. Now wait, pastor, I thought everybody was welcome here. Wait, I thought Jesus taught us not to judge. What? How can I love this person if I'm excommunicating him from the church? I think one of the most misunderstood concepts within the church in the 21st century is the treasure absolute treasure of Christian judgment and accountability. It's one of the most fought against ideas in the church and one of the most misunderstood. In fact, there is what Jesus taught in his Sermon on the Mount, which is misquoted probably every minute of every day in our current context. The the most popular verse in Scripture used to be John chapter 3, verse 16. I think in our day it is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Jesus taught this in his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I... Well, depending on your perspective, this is either good or bad news. Okay. <laughs> Chapter 7, verse 1 in Matthew's Gospel has context. <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I read the context for you? Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Because in the way you judge you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So this just isn't a flat-out command, don't you dare judge. It's be slow to judge because the measure that you use to judge others, you're going to be be judged by that same measure by Christ, right? Jesus isn't getting here just flat-out don't judge people. He's saying... Be sure you're not going to be judged just like they are before you cast judgment on them. Like, the same standard applies to you. And in fact, if you apply a standard to someone else, that standard is going to be applied to you as well. So, be careful. He's not saying don't. He's saying be careful when you do. Verse 3 in Matthew chapter 7. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Your sin is worse than their sin, yet you're casting judgment on them. Take care of your sin first. Verse 4, Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. And here's where the like the root of this instruction is. First, take the log out of your own eye. First, deal with your sin. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus is saying, Yes, there's an appropriate time to judge when you can actually serve the good of your brother by judging your brother. Right? First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And then verse 6, which is so confusing, confounding to some. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Here, dogs and swine, two images used to refer to those outside of the Israelite community. Gentiles, unbelievers, uh, and in our context, those who are not in Christ. And Paul, we'll get at this in the next passage in 1 Corinthians, there Jesus is teaching, don't don't judge the world like you judge fellow Christians. 
because they won't receive it. Someone who is a real Christian, a real Jew, a real Christian, those people will accept the judgment because they see how beneficial Christian biblical judgment is. So people will say, I'm a Christian, I don't judge anyone. That's not a Christian way to live. A Christian way to live is to judge my own sin, repent for that. Judge my brothers and sisters in a way that is good for them, not in a way that is malicious or condemning, but in a way that is good for them so that they might actually be sanctified in the context of Christian community. Let the Holy Spirit do the Holy Spirit's work, but those outside of the covenant community of faith, I have no business judging them because they will take what I have said, they will trample it underfoot, and they will spit it in my face. They, they won't benefit from that sort of judgment. So within the community of faith, we judge one another because it is good. We, we actually want to grow in Christ. We actually want to grow in our understanding of the law and in our obedience to, to Christ and who He is. We actually want to have God's law written more and more on our hearts as, as we see the day approaching. And we want to encourage one another. We want to build one another up. And we want to have accountability within the community of faith, which is not present in Corinth. And then we don't want those outside the faith though to be trampling on our words and to be spitting those back in our faith instead we want to be evangelizing reaching them right which Paul will get at in verses 9 through 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 so here we see the importance of judgment within the body and in this case that judgment should have led to the excommunication of this individual for such an open sin under the umbrella of porneia, such open sexual sin that he is justifying before the congregation. Now, why would excommunication be the should have here? Why should the church have excommunicated this individual? Well, Paul explains himself beginning in verse 3, 4, or because I, he says, you should have done it because I've already done it. I've already judged this individual, so you should have thrown him out of your midst. That's what he says here in verse 3. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction, and here's, here's where we get Paul's reasoning, what, what he's thinking, for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. When somebody comes to Christ sincerely, when Christ really gets somebody, what happens to that person? The heart is regenerated. That person is made into a new creation. And Paul here is applying that doctrinal truth like regeneration by grace and through faith and sanctification. The fact that God brings all of His work to completion, which Paul has already said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, right? That you may be brought to completion. That's why I'm writing this, because God is bringing you to completion. That's, that's the goal, that we be brought to completion. And, and God promises to work that out. But that's not happening with this individual. He's not bearing the fruit of repentance. He's not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Instead, he's still bearing the fruit of the flesh, which means this individual is not in Christ. Well, we can see if someone is in Christ by the fruit they bear. Is that the spiritual fruit? Or is it the fruit of the world? Is it the fruit of the, of the flesh? Like you can see, you can see fruit, and fruit reveals the root. And Paul here is saying... It, He's, he's not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. He's not bearing the fruit of salvation, not bearing the fruit of repentance. So he is not in Christ. But as long as the church supports what he's doing, he may be fooled into thinking that he's good. And the church all the time 
affirms false conversions and affirms false conversions. Affirms false conversions. No, you're not bearing any fruit, but it doesn't matter. Saved by grace through faith. Uh, well, you can't actually say somebody is saved through faith if you don't believe that they have to bear fruit because that's the faith that produces fruit. Right? So we, we recognize root does produce fruit. Paul recognizes root does produce fruit. We are not saved by our works, but our salvation does necessarily produce works on the other end. Root produces fruit. So Paul says, because we care about this individual, because we want his spirit to be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, when Jesus Christ comes in judgment at least against this person, right? We will hand him over to Satan for now in his flesh so that he might recognize that the church does not recognize his conversion as legitimate. That there is someone out there who cares enough about me to tell me that I am not in the faith and that I need to experience true conversion. That's the heart behind excommunication in this passage. That's not what Martin Luther experienced when the Roman Catholic Church excommunicated him, right? For the Roman Catholic Church, at least in 1517, when when the church excommunicated an individual, that excommunication was also excommunication from the kingdom of heaven. Like, you get excommunicated from the church, you lose your salvation. That is not biblical excommunication. A biblical excommunication is when we recognize there is someone here who is a member of the church on paper, a member of the local church who has covenanted with the body of believers, but who we have now discovered because of the fruit this person is bearing, the fruit of the flesh rather than fruit of the spirit, we have now discovered that this person is not actually in Christ, not sincerely in Christ, not legitimately in Christ, never made a true profession of faith. And because we recognize this person is not in Christ, then there is excommunication. And that excommunication doesn't mean a person can't still attend. It removes them from covenant, removes them from the the covenant body of believers. It's not saying, hey, we don't ever want anything to do with you again. That's not excommunication. Instead, excommunication is, hey, you're not in Christ. Your conversion wasn't legitimate. It was a false conversion. So we are removing you from membership. And our hope is that your spirit will be saved. That through this you recognize, oh, I really wasn't bearing the fruit of salvation. The church didn't support that. So perhaps, and this is our hope, this is our prayer, perhaps there will be repentance for you, sincere repentance this time, a a real conversion, a true profession of faith, not some selfish profession of faith, a true profession profession of faith and restoration to the covenant community. This is for your good. This is for your salvation and your sanctification. Now that is the motivation behind excommunication that Paul is getting at. That is Paul's heart. And he's saying, church, local church, you should have cared enough about this person to have this heart. Verse 6, Paul continues, your boasting is not good. Now, I'm not exactly sure what the church was boasting about specifically. All we can know is that the local church at Corinth was boasting in its arrogance, and the church at Corinth was boasting even though there was great sin present within the community, great sexual sin present publicly in the community. Still, it was boasting. Maybe it sounded something like, look how inclusive we are. Your boasting is not good, Paul says. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Here, leaven referring back to the sexual sin, porneia, in the midst of the congregation. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And he calls the church to action. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. 
But when there is such egregious sin in the community of faith, it seems the responsibility of purging that sin from the congregation falls to the local church at large. Notice here, Paul isn't saying, let your elders deal with that. The elders have a part to play in that, I'm sure. They should probably go to the elders first, but ultimately the responsibility falls to the congregation at large. Now this is congregationalism right here in the Bible, which is one of the two things that keeps me from being a Presbyterian. (laughs) That and paedo-baptism. Those are the two things that keep me from being a Presbyterian. This is congregationalism in the text. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. This is church discipline. Jesus described the process in Matthew chapter 18. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Well, what does it mean to be an unleavened local church? You are unleavened, which means the leaven has been removed from individuals who are in Christ. Here we learn something about the amazing power of Christ and the effectiveness of the gospel message that when we repent and believe the gospel, the Holy Spirit actually purges sin from within us. What? That's cool, all right? It's, it's not so shallow that we merely believe that, that Christ, when we are saved, that Christ doesn't allow us to endure the consequences of sin. Um, he does. We no longer have to, to pay for our sin, past, present, or future. Amen? That's cool, but there's something deeper going on as well with this. Christ actually frees us from the, the power and the hold of sin in our lives. Well, this is when God spoke with Cain. The cable was... Uh, cable. <laughs> Cain. Cain was burning with jealousy over his brother Abel because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. So Cain was burning with jealousy and God came to talk with, with him before he killed his brother. And God, God said, Cain, why are you enraged? Why are you so envious? Don't you know that if you do good, you will be accepted? have the proper motivation, which he didn't. Don't you know that if you do good, you'll be accepted? Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you. But you must master it. Now that's interesting. Master sin. Cain could not master his sin. It took hold of him. It was his master and he killed his brother Abel. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, sin no longer masters us. We master it. That's very real. And if, if you are in Christ, you know what this is like. There are things you can, you can think of that you did before Christ that the, the thought, thought doesn't even cross your mind now. I was speaking with somebody not too long ago. They came over for dinner. And they said, it really is amazing. We used to drink a lot of wine. (laughs) And after coming to Christ, like we still enjoy wine, which is good because God gave us good things to enjoy. We still enjoy it, but we just, we don't even desire to overindulge like we did. Why? Because the Holy Spirit causes us to, to master our sin. What a beautiful thing. And so if we are openly, willingly living in porneia, we send a very clear message that the Holy Spirit is not in us and we have not mastered our sin. And that's true for all sexual sin, whether it's homosexual or transsexual or heterosexual sin that is about me and my preferences and my identity and my self-indulgence. If we are not overcoming that, I'm not saying it all happens at once, because it don't. Excuse me. It doesn't. (laughs) It don't. But if we're not overcoming that, then 
we're not bearing the fruit there. The fruit called sanctification. God actually liberates us from our sin. The Holy Spirit comes in and causes us to master our our sin. So the church's boasting is not good. Little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And he challenges the church, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. This is going to restore you as a local church. Have you ever had somebody in a local church just causing all sorts of problems and like living in sin and and not willing to repent and causing all kinds of division and then finally that person just calls it quits because, oh, this church is too terrible and they leave and then all of a sudden the spirit is great in the church? Yeah. That's that's what that accomplishes. And Paul is very clear about that. Like you don't have to feel bad when that happens. Still love the person. But God's design for the church is not to have sinners and malicious people and wicked people running amok in the congregation of God. And we feel like we have to put up with it because we have to be loving and accepting and inclusive. That's not God's design for the church. Excommunication serves two purposes then. One's for the good of the individual, that the individual might actually come to repentance. God might grant that person repentance. And, and two, it's for the good of the congregation, that the congregation might experience revival and be capable of moving on to maturity in unity. For Christ, our Passover has also been sacrificed Again, Christ, and Paul mentions Passover here. Christ, our Passover. And he's doing this very intentionally. The Corinthian church is, is made up of mostly Gentiles, I believe. Okay? <laughs> and Paul refers to a Jewish holiday, Passover. Like, it's, it's expected that you're also celebrating Passover, a church made up of Gentile people who are not really that Jewish. It's still important that you be celebrating Passover. In fact, Christ is that... Passover. What was Passover? Why is Passover celebrated? Passover's a celebration, like a like a week long celebration. Let's start doing this, y'all. Like a week long celebration with lots of food and and lots of and lots of drink, and people are having a good time, and and they're gathered around the temple. Well, not today, but they were right um, gathered around the temple celebrating Passover. In remembrance of God delivering the nation of Israel from the nation of Egypt. And God, uh, in the person of Jesus, as he sat with his disciples and observed the Passover meal. We call it the Last Supper. Okay? And he's observing the Passover meal. <laughs> and he starts giving the elements new meaning. Jesus the same meaning, but new meaning. Like, essentially saying, this Passover meal is fulfilled in, in me. Meaning Jesus, not Andrew Cannon, but, but, but Jesus, right? The broken bread is His body, which is broken for His people, to deliver them not from the oppression of Egypt, but from the oppression of sin, which is a more devastating oppression. And the wine is the new covenant in Him. His blood spilled out for us so that we might be delivered from the consequences and power of sin. That's cool. And like this is to be a regular celebration at the church at Corinth and in every local church. These are the ways that Paul taught. Like when you gather, celebrate Passover. When you gather, celebrate Passover, which is why we celebrate Passover every week, why we observe the meal every week, because this is actually commanded in Scripture. (laughs) How do we get away from that? I don't know, but I'm so glad here at the Church of Sunsites we do this. It's biblical. And it reminds us of Christ's sacrifice and, and His delivering us from the consequences and power of sin. Therefore, Paul continues in verse... Eight. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. Passover. Every time we gather, let us celebrate the feast. Not with old leaven, 
nor with leaven of malice and wickedness. Now, these are two different types of leaven. Now, Paul has taken, he's been referring to it all together. Now, he's separating it. Now, there's two different types of leaven he is referring to. There's the old leaven, and there's the leaven of malice and wickedness, which is in view. That's the sin of this person, malice, wickedness, primarily, right? But also probably some malice that comes along with that, because wickedness isn't there without malice. But there's this old leaven. Now, Now, what in the world is old leaven? probably the best I can discern this is ritualistic religion that is under the law under Torah bound by Torah keep Torah earn salvation under the law under the law everyone stands condemned under that ritualistic system everyone stands condemned because no one can keep the whole degree of the Law, And in Christ, who is Passover, people are delivered from that sort of living, that sort of ritualistic religion, which people did know in the Old Testament, but it wasn't prominent. And in Christ, it is more prominent. And it's not that the law is nullified. The law is not nullified. Jesus did not come to do away with a single jot or tittle, according to the King James Version. Okay? Not a single line is done away with. Not a single letter removed from the law. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's where we find our freedom from the law. Not in the laws being done away with, but in Christ fulfilling the law, fulfilling all righteousness on behalf of His people, which is truly amazing. So if I am in Christ, then then His righteousness is imputed to me. When the Father sees me, He sees someone who is who has kept the whole degree of the law because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to to me and I am and I am in Christ. And this process of sanctification begins where I'm not trying to keep the law in order to gain salvation, but I have gained salvation and the law is now being written upon my heart and so the law works to sanctify me. The law is still there. The law is still important. It is not nullified, but it is not the means by which we receive salvation. Jesus Christ is our Passover. So we do not celebrate the feast with old leaven like, oh, we have to do this to remain righteous. <laughs> no, that's not why you celebrate Passover. Or with the leaven of malice and wickedness. One of the worst things we can do when we come to the Lord's table, have the Lord's meal, is be malicious. And y'all, in 11 years of ministry, I've experienced a lot of maliciousness toward me. There was one church Katie and I were in where we had a deacon ordination and somebody came to my house afterward and was just complaining about this deacon ordination just complaining the person was the person was qualified to become a deacon of the church it was a, a biblical deacon position he was being called to just complaining and complaining and complaining and I, and I found out the reason I was like why why is this such a bad thing and and this person said there are just too many deacons at that blankety blank church okay <laughs> like this is just straight up maliciousness there are too many deacons so I I went to my bookshelf, grabbed my Bible off the bookshelf, and I and I and I opened it, and I asked, um, "Is your is your criticism biblical, or is it selfish?" And no answer. Right? I think this person knew. And I proceeded to show this person what the New Testament had to say about the office of of deacon and. And how deacons were to serve. And after my spiel, this person came up with a few other, I'll be nice, critiques. A few other critiques of the church. A few meaning quite a few. Stormed out of my house and I haven't seen the person in church since. In any church since, to my knowledge. Okay. That's what malice leads to. That's that's straight up malice. And Paul says, don't go there. You are the divisive person if that describes you, if your life is built around malice. 
the other thing is wickedness and and accusations and public sins and the failure to repent and justifying self. If someone wants send me a real a nasty email criticizing one of my doctrinal viewpoints. And I and I simply responded like the initial email was you should know better better than to take that position he named a position. And I, I just emailed back and said, What is it you think I believe? Simple, right? What what is it you think I believe? And the person responded, if I were to print it out on paper, it had to be like six pages long. <laughs> you know? and, and the person responded, listing all of these things that, all of these beliefs that he ascribed to me, and not a single line was accurate. He didn't take the time to understand this person didn't. And I said, you know, I, I actually don't believe any of that. And the next email was just, more more hatefulness and more hatefulness and more hatefulness. This, I think, is probably a way that the church sins worse than many people do in, in the world. The church is good at that kind of thing, right? I'm tired of it. I, I, I hope that you are too. Because that just gives a... It just puts a foul taste in people's mouth and it's, and it's uncalled for and unbiblical and not right. Okay. Do not observe this meal with the, the leaven of malice and, and wickedness. Instead, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. If you are sincere, you're going to actually seek understanding rather than making assumptions. If you are sincere, you're going to consider others to be more important than yourself. If, if we are sincere, then we are going to be quick to repent when we realize that we are in sin and, and wrong. And furthermore, he says, with the unleavened bread of truth, meaning that we actually care to know what God has spoken and not just, not just what we have heard from other people. This is the way Scripture instructs us, right? These are the ways we grow into maturity and the ways we keep the unity of the faith in Christ's name and the unity of the local church, according to Paul here. And that those who are living in sin, not to be confused with just sinning on, you know, on an occasion, but those living in sin, that church discipline should be practiced against them. Not only if the sin is causing division, but if the sin is, is public, seeable, if the person is living in that because the church cannot try to justify sin, we must address it, at least with those who are part of the covenant community. And our hope is repentance and restoration every time because we want the good of the individual and the glory of God and the good of the congregation. We come now to our time of confession, time of repentance. Uh, if the Holy Spirit...